Well, it's a joy to welcome in those of you who are joining us now uh, on the web, either live or catching up with us later in the week. Good to have you be a part of worship with us at Freedom, as well as all of you who are in the room today. We are uh, marching through the book of Acts, and today we're going to be mostly in chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn there with me. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to go ahead and say as a disclaimer on the front end that uh, the passage that we will cover today is one of the most strange, surprising, unusual stories in all of the Bible and especially in all of the New Testament. I can't think of anything in the New Testament that serves as even a close parallel to the story that we'll read today. It is, it's one of those that uh, it is flat out shocking and it's not a happy story. Uh, we're going to read the paragraph before and after it to try and get it in some context so that it makes a bit more sense for us. Uh, I'm sharing a message today that I'm entitling When Good Intentions Aren't Good Enough. And this story is the most prime example of that. Uh, now, we all know that thankfully there are situations where good intentions will take you a long way. I'll share a good example. You know, in love, good intentions can take you so far. Uh, back in the fall, before sometime before the wedding, uh, the thought occurred to me that I, I like to take flowers to Jackie frequently, and she, but there's something a little more special about having them delivered, and so I usually will buy them and bring them to her. And I thought, well, I'm going to call or go online and order her some flowers, and so I went online, didn't want to just trust without seeing what I was getting, so I went online, and I looked, and I mean, I didn't, Guys, I did it right this time. You know, I, did, I didn't go for the cheap stuff. I looked for something that was big and beautiful. And I, I'm a, a stickler for detail. And so I'm like, I'm counting. I'm like, I want to make sure that this thing's really full. So in the picture, I could count 20-something roses just on the one side of the bouquet that I could see, along with lots of other things. I'm like, that is great. It's huge. She'll love it. It was, it was expensive. It was not an inexpensive at all. But I'm like, I'm going to go all out. We're about to get married. I want, to, want her to know how much I love her. So I paid for that, ordered it, and the next day it was delivered, and I get the phone call that you know that you love to get where she's like, oh, I was so surprised when the flowers came, and, and I appreciate those so much. And then I dropped by later to her house, and I had ordered this big, beautiful bouquet, and I kid you not, there was this tiny little nubbin of, of flowers and again, just because I'm the nitpicker that I am, I count and I'm like, there are six roses in that thing that I just paid $90 for. I could count 20-something in the half that I could see online. And, you know, she's like, it's okay, it's okay. I know what your heart was in that. And I'm, I'm pulling it up online. I'm like, no, 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 that was how much I love you. Not that. She's like, it's okay. I get what you intended. I know, I know what you meant. You know, thankfully, in love, sometimes good intentions will be enough, at least for a while. Uh, you know, it, it can be that way in gift giving. You know, you, you ordered it three weeks before Christmas. It's back ordered and it didn't come in. And on Christmas Day, all you can give them is a picture and the promise it's supposed to be in in three to five days. But I was thinking of you and it ain't great, but you know, you had good intentions and usually they'll understand. Sometimes good intentions will take you a pretty long way. But the reality of the matter is there are some circumstances in life where good intentions aren't good enough and where good intentions count for nothing. You know, we're entering tax season. 
April 15th is not that far off and all the accountants and bookkeepers in the room are kind of moaning because January 15th is about here and they're about to you know, go into hibernation work mode, you know, have to disappear for three months. And they all know that when April 15th rolls around, you can have all the good intentions in the world. But if you haven't filed a tax return or an extension, the IRS doesn't care where your intentions were. They only care about your follow-through. Amen? Or oh me. <laughs> and the bank's that way too. I'll, oh, man, I hate even telling this story. I hate remembering it all these years later. But in the late 90s, when we had first moved to Fairhope, you know, I did the routine that I'd always done. In those days, we, we were very much just week to week and month to month. So you get the monthly paycheck, and then you can pay the bills. And so, as I always did, got the monthly paycheck, deposit that, you know, write out the bills. And I did that like I had done so many months before. And just a few days later, go to open the mailbox, and there's a stack of identical-looking things all coming from Regions Bank. And I'm like, what's up with that? And as I tear open the first, my heart's kind of racing. I'm like, I don't think this is good. Open it. Insufficient funds. The next one, insufficient funds. And I'm going, what? I know. There's plenty of money in the bank. Oh, no. For the first time in my life, I forgot to deposit my paycheck and wrote all of those checks. Six returned checks all together. You know, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. But I had the money. I, I intended to take it to the bank. Just out of embarrassment, I'm calling the bank to explain. Can I just tell you, they don't care. <laughs> I mean, they may have at a personal level appreciated the phone call and the humor of this idiot calling to say, but I really meant to come. You know, okay, well, thanks. It don't matter. $30 a pop. Bam, bam, bam. Because in many instances, it doesn't matter what your intentions are. When it comes to banking, they don't care where your paycheck was if it wasn't in the bank. Because good intentions don't do you any good. There are instances and situations in life where good intentions count for nothing. And today, I'm just going to be honest on the front end. You know, A lot of times we come in here and the Word of God is for us an encouragement. It is a comfort today. The Word of God is probably going to be more of a corrective. It's going to be... This is not going to be one of those bring a fuzzy blanket to church. This is going to be put on your helmet, okay? So you, you, you have been warned because today is a day to say we better wake up and do a careful examination of some things as we look together. We're not going to begin in uh, Acts 5.1. We're going to back up just a few verses to set the stage to make a little more sense of this. We're going to pick up where we last left off in Acts uh, beginning in verse 34, where it says there in Jerusalem in the early days of the church, the early months, that there were no needy persons among them. That one line is extraordinary. Can you imagine it in any culture at any time, but especially in such a desperately needy culture where the people were living in, in poverty, that they could say there were no needy persons among them during this season. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. It's this incredible picture that existed only for a pretty short season in the earliest life of the church that the people were so moved by what the Spirit of God was saying and doing in their lives that there was just this wave of generosity that swept through the church. And whoever had resources was willing to liquidate that if they encountered somebody within the body of Christ who had a need. And then they give a good example of someone who was doing this in verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, 
whom the apostles called Barnabas. There's a name we're going to hear many more times in the book of Acts. Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. So Dr. Luke is just giving us a prime example of, you know, here's one of the guys who's going to emerge as one of the central, most significant church leaders in the first century church. And he was one of those that one of the clearest evidences that the Spirit of God was really filling him and working in his life was he was genuinely burdened for needy people around him to the extent that he took one of the few physical resources that he had, a field, and he sold that and he gave all the money away. And Luke is just giving that as an example to say, this is the kind of thing that was going on in the early church. And it's always one of the marks of a church that's experiencing revival is this kind of generosity. So now we, we have that as the backdrop, all of this giving that's going on. And now here we're going to read about another couple, a married couple in the church, that they get caught up in this. And it's, it's such a good thing. Clearly God is in this. And, and they've come into the church and they want to be a part of this wave of generosity. And so we read in verse 1, Now a man named Ananias... Together with his wife, Sapphira, they also sold a piece of property. It's like, oh, cool, here's another couple. They're going to follow Barnabas' example and the example of many others. And they, too, are going to do the same thing. But this story is about to take a U-turn like you won't believe. But with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter... now. Realize that Peter at this juncture, with Jesus having returned to heaven, Peter is the central figure at this point. He was always the, the loudest, most outspoken of the apostles. And so now he is kind of number two to Jesus. He is the central leader in the church at this point. Peter responds by saying, Ananias, now, don't you know, in this moment, as Ananias has Peter, this isn't Andrew or you know, one of the lesser-known disciples. He's got the attention of the main man. If you're Ananias, what do you think is coming as he calls your name? You know it. Come on, give me a little love. Pat me on the back. I'm happy to hear you calling my name. Peter, the big dog. He's recognizing me. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then young, man, young men came forward and they wrapped up his body and they carried him out and they buried him. Now, if that was the end of the story, we might read that and go, wow, what a tragic coincidence that Ananias, when confronted with the fact that he didn't follow through on what he had intended to do, was so shocked and upset by Peter confronting him, that he had a heart attack or blew out an aneurysm or something. You know, he just, in that moment, it just was too much for him and he just naturally expired. But there's more to the story that makes us know this is not just a natural occurrence. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? 
Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will also carry you out. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And once again, Luke says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, don't you reckon? Don't you think great fear would seize the whole church? I mean, can you imagine if during the offering time today, two different people drop dead as they, you know, they put their gift in the basket, the basket goes on down the line, and you hear donk of a head hitting the concrete floor. Basket goes on a couple of rows further down the line. Once again, doink, another head hits the floor. I mean, you guys on the back row are going to be feeling some pressure by the time the basket gets to you, aren't you, at that point? Can you imagine in the days and weeks that follow as the local papers and Channel 5 and Channel 10 News get the story, you know, breaking news, you read it online on AL.com, Freedom Church, Sunday morning, two different people dropped dead during the giving portion of the service. Apparently, they didn't give what they were supposed to give. You think there might be a smaller crowd next week? Seriously, there is the worst church growth plan imaginable. You would think, you know, God starts killing people off during the giving time. Yeah, twice, Luke says, great fear. Seize the church. He isn't done. Verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. He's like, yeah, before God started killing some of them, they'd all get together. But now things are a little different. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. But here's the strange thing in that. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they passed by. And crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. And all of them were healed. Now, the last paragraph that I read, it, on the surface, it sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? He said, you know, up until this time, everybody would get together out in the huge temple courtyards and they'd gather by the thousands and they would listen to Peter and probably at times other apostles. They would listen to this in the large group setting. They would listen to the teaching and then, you know, as we've read in other places, then they'd break up, they'd go into the homes where they'd wrestle with that and... and, and pray and, and fellowship together. And then he says, the implication of the way he words that last paragraph is like, but after this happened, that whole thing of everybody getting together in Solomon's colonnade, this portion of the temple courtyard, uh, that quickly began to fade. And you couldn't hardly get any new people to come to that group anymore. And he's tying all these things together. He said, but you know, it's kind of easy to understand. Uh, once God speaking through Peter start striking people dead, it's really hard to get people to show up when Peter stands up to preach. It's kind of like, you know what? I think I'll just come for small group and I'll skip worship this week. I mean, that's essentially the implication of what he's saying here. You couldn't really get any new people to come and yet there were still people every day who were being saved and were being added to their number and on the surface of that you go, well, well how was that happening? Oh, they were meeting with the body? They just weren't coming to the large group gathering where the apostles would stand up and preach. There's now this fear of like, oh my goodness, God is so with these people. 
we're afraid of how that might break out against us. So we're just going to show up at your house for the little after church time. And in that environment, people are continuing to be saved. What in the world is going on here? Why on earth, in the giving portion of, of worship and the life of the church, where a couple is doing something that's above and beyond, by all accounts, this isn't their tithe, this is way above and beyond that, they're doing something that on the surface of it is a very generous act, and God strikes them dead in the middle of attempting to do that. Why? What's up with that? I mean, we all know of things that we've done in our lives that we would rate as far worse than, than what this seems to be. That this couple is bringing a gift above their tithe. They just didn't bring as much as they had set out to bring. Why is it such a big deal to God? We all know of, of other people who belong to a church who've done grievous things, and God didn't strike them dead. God hasn't struck us dead. What's going on in this story? And more significantly, why did God include this in His Word? What are we to learn from this? What, what's the take-home and the application for this? Well, I want us to take just a few minutes to back up, and I'm just going to share six thoughts that are really just unpacking the story Four of them to kind of tell the story and the last two to make, hopefully make some sense out of it. The story begins, as you see, with sacrificial generosity being the hallmark of the church. And it's important for us to realize this is always going to accompany a great movement of God's Spirit. It has in every great revival that you'll ever read about. You know, the, the whole thing of the story of little piece about uh, Barnabas and how he sold a field that he owned and brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. It's just a picture of how the Spirit of God was moving and the most striking thing about it was that it was happening in a context of poverty. Don't let that be lost on us. Because for many of us, we start with good intentions. So, so many of us feel like, you know, if you go back and measure how much I've given in the past year, and most of us, oh, by the way, in the next three months, that'll be measured. Most of us will get statements in the next two weeks that will say how much we've given to the church and to charitable causes. And a lot of times, as church go and followers of Christ, we'll open those statements and it's kind of like, ooh, I feel kind of bad about that. The number at the bottom line there is, it's not nearly what I intended for it to be, but I, God knows my heart. I really intended to give a lot more than that, but God knows my heart. And he knows that I meant to do a lot more than I did. But there were some things that came up that I didn't know. And I hope God understands that. My intentions were good. It's just I hit on some hard times. I mean, there were some expenses with our kids and with our vehicles and with our house that we could not have anticipated. And surely God has to understand that. And I just want to be clear about this. God understands the expenses with our kids and with our everything with our health, all of those things. But at the end of the day, the example that we're given in Scripture is not of people who had no surprises and who had abundant resources. The picture that God gives us in Scripture is of ordinary people who lived in desperate times far worse than any of us in this room have ever known who consistently gave generously out of their need. What we're seeing 
is the living out of the promise that's been given over and over in the Old Testament. Passages like Proverbs 28, 27, which says, He who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. Well, that one's worth reading again, isn't it? Why don't you say the first half of that one with me? He who gives to the poor will lack nothing. Do you believe that? We said that about as, uh, as fervently as I think we believe it. He who gives to the poor will lack nothing. If we believe that, we'd give generously to those in need, wouldn't we? If we really believe that. If we believed that the person who gives generously to the poor will never lack anything, we would never hesitate to write the check, would we? Because we'd know that God is committed to supplying seed to the sower, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. These New Testament Christians, when God began to move in their hearts, they began to, to operate in line with the heart of God, who is ultimately a giver. And they began to see the reality of this, that God does resupply those who give generously. Now, the second half of that is just heavy stuff. But he who closes his eyes to them, to the needy, receives many curses. That's a heavy word. Did, did that reality go away when Jesus came? Can we erase that stuff because that's Old Testament? That doesn't apply to us. No, these are truths that still apply. Is it that God goes around handing out curses to people who are not generous? No, that's not what the Scriptures show. Malachi 3 is a prime example as it fleshes out the idea of the curses that fall on those who are greedy. And it is that there is a covering, that there is a protection from God that's just removed for those who are determined to just take their resources and take care of themselves, that God essentially goes, since you've got this covered, I don't. And he removes the covering. And Malachi 3 shows us the different ways that he refers to the devourer, talking about the enemy, is able to come in and do all kinds of things because now he has access to our resources, to our ability to make money, to our, our, all the different things around us that can cost us money, that he begins to just punch holes in our resources and in our buckets so that suddenly we're drained dry. Those are the curses that fall on the greedy. Well, they're living out the good side of that, that he, give, he who gives to the poor will act no good thing. Now, the, the second truth, or second part of the story is Ananias and Sapphira, they see this, and they intended to take part in the generosity wave. That's why they went and sold a piece of property because they had good intentions. I'm absolutely convinced that when Ananias and Sapphira set out to sell this piece of property, that they just were so enthusiastic about what they were seeing happening around them that they genuinely wanted to imitate what they had seen in a good way. Have you ever uh, been in an environment, by the way, where there was just an overwhelming move of the Spirit that just broke out in huge, extravagant generosity. I'm not talking about fat cats writing checks that are easy for them to write. I'm talking about a move of the Spirit where people are just giving whatever they have. I've had an opportunity to be a part of that in a couple of different time frames. The first one was the most surprising and wonderful to watch. And it was in a church where revival was taking place. I don't mean a revival meeting. I mean spirit-led, spirit-filled revival. And at, there was a point in time in that where the manifestation of the Spirit that was the clearest was just that people spontaneously just began to give at a, just a crazy level. I remember one service in particular that people just began to... 
it's going to sound weird to some of you, but it, it just, I'm telling you what happened. The Spirit of God just began to move in the service and during the response time. People just weeping, responding to how God is speaking. And they just start coming forward one after the other after the other. And at first you're not really sure what's going on. You just sense the presence of God. And in time the pastor begins to share what people are saying as they're coming forward. And it's so wild and so cool that people are coming and they're giving their boats and their cars and their jewelry and their stocks and their money. I mean, just person after person after person. And it's just, it's not like, hey, we're having a big fundraiser tonight and we need you to give all you can give. It's just God moving on the hearts of people to be burdened for the needs of others and to give generously to that. And it's so cool when that starts. It is like a rising wave. It's, it's easy to, to follow the lead of others and to go, yes, that is so cool. I am so moved by your obedience that I want to be obedient like that. And there's a real positive peer pressure thing that kicks in. Ananias and Sapphira were a part of something like that. They are seeing so many other people model this that they go, we want to do this too. And they talk together and they're like, hey, you know that, that piece of property that we've got? Why don't we sell it? And let's just give all the money. We'll just bring it all to the apostles and they can give it to the needy. And, and God will be pleased with that. Don't you think, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. And so that's what they set out to do. They're going to be just as generous. But then their good intentions, given a little bit of time, something bad happens to them. The third thing we find in the story is somewhere between deciding to sell the property and to give all the money, we see Ananias and Sapphira decide along the way to compromise and to just tell a little white lie about their gift. With his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest, and he put that at the apostles' feet. There's a part of you that has to be saying, who can blame the guy? I mean, think about if in your situation, let's say that today you own a home, but you've got a mortgage. You've been paying on it for some years, but you've got a lot of years still left to pay on that. If you're married, let's say you've got a couple of vehicles. One of them's paid off, but it's getting pretty old. Maybe it's only got a year or two left you're going to be able to drive yet. You're still making payments on another vehicle. But then something happens that you didn't see coming. A relative passes, and they leave to you a home and a few acres of property. Now, it's not right here close to you. It's far enough away that... It's not like you're really going to be able to do anything with that. You're not going to pack up and move there. Your job's not there. You're not going to go live there. You, now you just own this thing. And as you're trying to figure out, what are we going to do with this? Imagine, maybe in the context of worship, as you're just thinking about how God wants to use you, that the thought comes in your head, that house and that piece of property that I've been trying to figure out, why would God let us take possession of that. We're not able to use it. What are we supposed to do with it? And the thought pops in your head, what if we're supposed to sell it? What if we were to sell that house and that piece of property? It's not going to be a million dollars, but it would be a substantial amount of money. What if we took that and we gave it all to, whether it's the church or some charitable organization or Here's Life Africa, something that's going to serve the needy. 
Wouldn't that be a good thing? And as you're talking with your spouse about it, you're getting excited and your spouse is confirming, I think that's a great idea. I think that would honor the Lord. And that, that'd be a great way to put that to good use. And you're in agreement. We're going to put every dime of that money into this charitable organization or to this church. And so you set out to do it. But it's not an instant thing to sell a house and a piece of property, is it? So you list it. And you get it appraised, and you go through all those steps, and it takes you a few months, but sure enough, you do the deal, you sell the house, closing time comes around. But somewhere between the thought and the commitment of, hey, we'll sell that and we'll give all the money away, as you're laying in bed night after night, the thought begins to come to you, but you know, I've still got a mortgage, I've still got a car that I'm paying on, and... I mean, my life really would be simplified a lot. It would take a lot of stress off of me if I just took part of that money and I paid off what's left on my mortgage and I paid off what's left on my car and I replaced our old car. I mean, I could still probably give half the money to the church and the longer you think about that, the more it just seems like nonsense to give the whole amount away. And when the time comes and you actually get that check at closing and it's got all those zeros... And by that time, it just feels so right to go to the bank and deposit that and pay your debts and take care of some things for yourself. But then you take all that's left and you give it away. Now, tell the truth. Couldn't you relate to doing that? And couldn't you feel pretty good about yourself for doing that? I mean, you're still probably bringing in a check for fifty or seventy-five or $100,000 dollars to church or some charity. And I mean, at that point, you still got to be thinking, give me a little love. I mean, that deserves a pat on the back, a big thank you note or something, doesn't it? I mean, this is a big honking check. Don't you know God's pleased? Don't you know God's going to be impressed by that? That is the story put in the 21st century, isn't it? Doesn't that sound a lot like Ananias and Sapphira in 2015? That's what's taking place. But there's a problem with this. Peter confronts it when he says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Clearly, when Ananias and Sapphira decided to do this, they didn't keep it a secret. They made a commitment to the Lord that they were going to do this. God, if you'll just let us sell this land and get a good price for it, we're going to give all the money to the apostles so that the poor can be cared for. And it's obvious, Peter, he knows what the deal is. He knows that there was a commitment to bring all the money from the sale of the land. So, obviously, they have just, as a testimony, only as a testimony, or maybe as a prayer request, because we're great at sharing our, our, you know, the things that we want to share, We'll share it as a prayer. Have a prayer concern, church. We're selling a piece of land so we can give all the money to the poor. So would you just pray with us that we would get a real good price for the land? Doesn't that sound like us today, you know? We, we can do some creative things in prayer time, can't we? Sharing prayer. We can share gossip. We, we can, you know, give ourselves a pat on the back. We don't know how they did it, but they let the word out. Hey, this is what we're doing, and we're going to give it all. Give it all to Jesus through the apostles. So when the time came, and God just clearly spoke to Peter and let him know something's up here. So he knew to ask the question, 
Is, is that really it? Is that really what you promised? Is, is that the full amount that you received for the land? And Ananias did exactly what he and Sapphira had agreed to do. Let's just tell a little lie. It's not going to hurt anybody. We're still giving a generous gift. I mean, how much can God get upset when we're still giving a big fat gift? Well, I don't know. He can get upset enough to kill you, but beyond that, I guess not very upset. Is it really a big deal? Is it a big deal to lie about something like this? Does it matter much? I mean, I've shared with you before, recent studies have shown that the average woman in America lies three times a day on average, more than a thousand times a year. And men, before we get puffed up, the average man lies six times a day, more than 2,000 lies a year. It's just, it's just lies. It's just a little deception, just a little bending of the truth. Is that stuff really a big deal? Ananias and Sapphira discovered the reality of many passages like Psalm 5, 6, which says of the Lord, you destroy those who tell lies. Deceitful men the Lord sometimes gets a little agitated with. No. Deceitful men, the Lord what? Abhors. We don't use that word a lot today, do we? Anybody got a good synonym for that? Detests, hates, can't stand. It's like as strong a word as you can come up with in the Hebrew. When it comes to lying and deceit, God absolutely cannot stand it. Uh, Proverbs 12:22. the Lord detests lying lips, but He delights in men who are truthful. Let's pretend like this is an English class. Take your pen and underline the verbs. Destroy, abhor, detest, and delights. Boy, that's pretty strong contrast, isn't it? How do you think God feels about lying? Wow. It is His hot button. Now, we love to say all sin is the same in, in the eyes of God. All sin is the same. And in one sense, it's true because sin is missing the mark and sin is deserving of the judgment of God. But it is interesting that not all sin is treated the same in Scripture. I mean, I could name for you a long list of sins that the Scriptures only you know, reference in passing as being sin. But I don't tell you, when it comes to truth and lying... The Scriptures just hammer it again and again and again that this is a big deal to God. That's why God's judgment falls on Ananias and Sapphira because they lied and didn't fulfill their commitment. Peter says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? You get the implication of that. He's saying, you never had to give any of this. You would have been fine if you'd kept all the money. You, you didn't have to make the promise that you made. And after it was sold, the money was at your disposal before you started making promises about what you were going to do. So what made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied to men, but to God. He gets to the heart of the matter. You lied when you didn't fulfill your commitment. Why is lying such a big deal to God? I'm convinced that a big part of it really comes down to this. Because truth and deception or truth and lying get at what 
defines the fundamental character of who God is. He is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. He is truth. And Jesus was very clear in saying, Satan, the devil, is the father of all lies. These are not just kingdoms in conflict. These are personal beings in conflict. This is the great conflict in all of history and in all of the cosmos. It is God versus Satan. They are in constant conflict. Truth versus the father of all lies. So when I lie, who do I ally myself with? Who do I get aligned with every time I lie or deceive? The father of all lies. Now, I'm a follower of Christ. I represent Christ everywhere I go all the time. And it's not because I'm a pastor. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's exactly the same for you. We represent him everywhere we go. The God who says, I am truth. Everything I speak is truth because I am truth. You represent God to the world. I represent God to the world. And every time I deceive, I bend the truth, I tell a white lie. What do I do? I do two things. I misrepresent the character of God. I show the world a version of God that is completely wrong. And I align myself with the enemy of God. And I represent Him, the Father of all lies. Do you begin to just appreciate a little bit of why God says, I detest lying lips. I abhor those who are deceitful. But I take great pleasure in those who are truthful. Now hold on to the other half of that. Because what God is saying in that is, I want to bless your socks off every time you represent me, Will. Every time you speak the truth, you represent me. And I'm pleased in that. Even when you speak the truth and it was hard to say the truth. How many of you know it's hard to tell the truth sometimes? Every man with a wife knows it's hard to tell the truth sometimes. Honey, do I look fat in this? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, sometimes the truth is hard. God loves those. He delights in those who tell the truth. So let's, let's get down to what's this all about. Two final things that we'll say to make sense out of this. First of all, we need to understand from this, this passage that God cares little about good intentions, but much about how we follow through. And Peter said to Sapphira, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are here at the door, and they will carry you out also. The point is, Sapphira, you had an opportunity to do the right thing. You committed to the right thing and you chose along the way to lie and to, to pull back and compromise and not do what you committed to do. And as much as they would think, and I am sure comforted themselves every step of the way up until they dropped dead, that our intentions are good. And God always blesses good intentions. Church, here's the question that we need to be asking. Where have I settled for good intentions in place of good follow-through? And let's start right where the story starts. Let's start with our pocketbooks. Where has God called you, or maybe you just out of the goodness of your heart have felt the need to, to give? I mean, it may have been something as basic as having said ten times over, I'm going to start tithing. What's the follow-through look like on that? It may be a specific need that you encountered. And you said, I'm going to do that. Lord, I am gonna, 
I really feel like your spirit's prompting me. I'm going to follow through. I'm going to help with that. I mean, I, I think about what Liz was talking about. The, the backpack program, feeding hungry children here in the county. I wonder how many people heard about that and made a commitment in their hearts because the spirit prompted them, I'm going to give $125 to feed a needy child for the next year. Was the follow through there? Maybe God prompted you about Sponsoring a kid with compassion or world vision. What's the follow-through look like? And it's not always about financial stuff. Sometimes it's about relationship choices. Sometimes it's about you know, things like, hey, I know that God's been moving on my heart to make this change in my life that I cannot make on my own, but I, I know I'm going to get and celebrate recovery. And you've been telling yourself that. You've been full of good intentions for how many months? And how many Thursday nights have you been in CR? Or you've been coming to CR and you've been telling yourself you're going to get a sponsor, you're going to work the steps. How many months have you been going to the program without ever getting a sponsor, without ever working the steps? The Holy Spirit's really good at filling in the blanks for us. The bottom line question is real simple. How's your follow-through looking as compared to your good intentions? Because sometimes good intentions just aren't good enough. Ecclesiastes 5 maybe sums up the point of the story today better than any other passage could. Where Solomon says there, So when you make a promise to God, keep it as quickly as possible. He has no use for a fool. Do what you promise to do. Better not to promise at all than to make a promise and not keep it. Don't you know that that would be the verse that should belong on Ananias and Sapphira's graves, you know? We would have been better off not to make the promise than to make the promise and not fulfill it. So what have you committed to that the follow-through hasn't been there yet that may need to be corrected? Jesus said a lot about this. He told a great little story about this idea when he says in Matthew 21, now what do you think about this? And he gives us a simple little parable. He says, a man with two sons told the older boy, son, you go out today in the vineyard and work. And the son said, no, I won't go. He, he had, I can relate to this, he had a strong-willed child and a compliant child. The first one was a strong-willed. No, I'm not going to do it. <clears throat> but then uh, later he changed his mind and he went away and did what his father said do. And the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But then he didn't go. And so Jesus asked, which of the two obeyed his father? And they replied, well, the first, of course. And Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, the corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. He's talking to very religious synagogue, church-going people. For John the Baptist came and he showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him while the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe in him and repent of your sins. The point of Jesus' little story. The point's real simple. It's not about what you say, it's about what you do. It's not about what you intend to do, it's about what you actually do. Now, we're about out of time, and it would be really easy to zone out, and this is the little portion of the message I can't afford for anybody to zone out on because I do not want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. We are a new covenant people. It is a covenant of grace. And I don't want in any way to distort that message. I want to clear something up. We in the modern church 
we who are a part of the whole Reformation movement, there comes a time when we need to recognize that the Reformation was indeed a reaction against legalism which said, hey, if you give enough money, you can buy forgiveness for your sins. And that was wrong. That was wickedly wrong. That was the church. That was priests saying, bring us more of your money. You can buy forgiveness for your sins. And in the Reformation, godly men and women took a stand and said, that is not the truth of the Word of God. It is the grace of God that comes, that we access through faith and faith alone. It is only through that that we receive the forgiveness of sins. Tremendously important doctrines that have defined the modern church for the last several hundred years. This doctrine of grace. We are a grace people, but understand this. Anything that happens that is a reaction will often move from when the pendulum has swung way over here, when it swung way toward legalism, and we react to correct that, the pendulum will typically overswing in the other direction in just about any area of life. When we have to react to one significant error, one big overswing, we will overswing in the opposite direction. And we have done that with the doctrine of grace when we have taken it beyond the teachings of Jesus. Now, I challenge you to go back and reread the Gospels and the New Testament. We are called to a covenant of grace where the forgiveness of our sins comes through faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. It absolutely does. But we have taken the, the idea of grace so far that if you watch how the average American Christian or Western Christian lives, it is as though... It doesn't matter how obedient we are. It doesn't matter how screwed up we are in the way that we live our lives because we live under grace. And as long as you go back and ask forgiveness, it doesn't matter. It's all good. We're all good with God. And what I want to say to you is the teaching of Jesus was about faith in God that results in obedience. And a faith that doesn't result in changed behavior is not saving faith. And it's this concept that caused... James to say in, you know, in such a confrontational kind of way that faith without works is dead and does you no good. It's why Paul said to believers again and again, you should examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Jesus said, he who loves me is the one who obeys my commands. And for some, some in this room, some listening online right now, who have comforted ourselves with the thought of, well, you know, I can remember the day that I was in that service, that I felt that conviction and I felt the Spirit of God and I prayed that prayer and I maybe even shed a tear and I got dunked in some holy water and I've, I've done that stuff. Now, I realize my life hasn't really looked all that different since then and I can't tell you any significant ways that I, I really actively try and follow Christ, but I had an encounter with Christ, so I'm under grace. And I would say to you, there is little to nothing in the New Testament to offer you comfort or hope. Because saving faith that gives us access to the grace of God is always a faith that is expressed in a life of obedience. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about moral perfection. You and I are going to continue to have screw-ups and foul-ups and struggle with our motives and we'll make wrong decisions. But here's the difference. A person living under grace who has saving faith will be convicted about their sin and will be quick to, to say when they realize, oof, 
I missed the mark. I know I was being selfish. I know I compromised. To repent, to confess that, and to seek to make it right instead of just going, not that big a deal. Not that, it's not that big a deal that I lie. It's not that big a deal that I'll use deception to make my life more comfortable, to not make other people uncomfortable by speaking the truth. I want to tell you, when we make allowances for that, don't comfort yourself at night by just going, it's okay, the grace of God's enough, I can just be a liar. The Word of God says liars don't inherit the kingdom of God. I'm not trying to bring any legalism. There's just a time and place we better consider the whole counsel of God. I refuse to be one of those pastors that just spits out platitudes and tickles your ears to tell you the fun stuff in Scripture without saying, Jesus had some really strong things to say to us. Like when He said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, that will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is He who does the will of my Father who will enter the kingdom. Does that mean we're saved by good works? Nope. It means we're saved by grace through faith. But it's a faith that always goes to work. It's a faith that is going to consistently lead to transformed living. Where we allow God to begin to change us, not just our behavior, but our attitudes. People that we've let ourselves hate in the past, we can't continue to hold on to hate because a follower of Christ can't do that. And if I hold on to hate, I need to look hard in the mirror and say, am I a follower of Jesus? Because followers of Jesus don't continue to hate people. Followers of Jesus don't get to continue to be greedy. Followers of Jesus respond to the needs of others. And this is the kind of stuff that should be very sobering and make us look hard at ourselves and go, wow, this isn't a message about I must be going to hell. It's a message that says when I see stuff that doesn't represent Christ and His character, I better get busy doing something about that, starting with getting on my knees and confessing it to God and asking for the desire to be a different person. Because it's not enough that I shed some tears and I prayed a prayer and I got dunked in the holy water. That will not matter on the day of judgment. What will matter is whether or not I am a follower of Jesus. Sometimes good intentions are not good enough. And the final thing I'll say is this. We see in this story that God carefully guards the health and the purity of His church. We read the paragraph following the Ananias and Sapphira story because it gives us a picture of what God was after. God's not out to see who all He can kill. God takes no great pleasure in the death of of people that He called to be His children. But what we see is that God worked in the church in such a way that the sick were made well, that many more people came to faith in Christ and were saved, And people who were in bondage to demonic oppression were set free. You know what we see? Is a church that is holy. They're they're serious about following Christ. And the Spirit of God is moving powerfully in the midst of that. And where the Spirit of God can be so present in a church that really is actively following Christ. Here's God showing us, this is what I'm after. I'm after you getting to live in the realities of God's character and God's kingdom. And in that situation, sick people get made well miraculously. People who are in bondage to behaviors and attitudes that they can't control, they get set free from the demonic oppression that holds them there. And lost people whose hearts have seemed to be so far from God wind up being transformed and saved. This is the result that God's after. And the thing that stands in the way is people, and especially leaders, 
who are willing to compromise and settle for something less than holy living and a real pursuit of God. It's interesting that Luke brackets Barnabas' story right up against Ananias and Sapphira because Barnabas will emerge as one of the most significant leaders in the first century church. It kind of gives us a sense of things in the first century weren't so different than they are today. That those who are willing to be generous and just go the extra mile, they emerge as leaders. It really suggests an interesting thought. If God had not put His finger on Ananias and Sapphira, would they very possibly have emerged as leaders in the first century church? Oh, I mean, look at... Any of you who've been in church life know what I'm talking about. Oh, look at the generosity of these people. We should put them on the personnel committee. We should make him a deacon. We should put this person in as an elder of the church because they're really generous. Let me tell you, that happens all the time in churches. If Ananias and Sapphira had had arisen quickly to leadership in the early church as opposed to Barnabas, people who were willing to compromise and lie and deceive as opposed to a man who had a heart for God and, and God's character, how would that have impacted the church? Don't know, but it wouldn't have been good. And this story is a good reminder. There is no limit to the lengths that God would go to to protect His bride, the church, and to keep her healthy. Well, that's especially a word for every one of us in any kind of leadership position. It matters how we live, not just how we intend to live. God wants Freedom Church to be a place where people are saved and set free, healed, and just living a life filled with the the life of God, the Spirit of God poured out on us. But we can't be flippant about how we speak and how we fulfill our commitments and the way that we live our lives. Because good intentions sometimes just aren't good enough. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, I thank You for the truth of Your Word and for how it comforts us and encourages and instructs us, but also for how it corrects and convicts us. I thank You in my own life for specific things that You've put Your finger on this week just reminding me of commitments that needed to be followed through on. And I pray that you would continue to just do that in my life and in in the lives of those here today. I pray that you would speak to us about areas where we have just allowed our, our attitudes to remain rotten or our behavior to be out of line without addressing that. I pray that you would put your finger on commitments that we've made to you or to others and have yet to follow through on. Lord, we want to be people of our Word. We want to be people who follow through. We want to be people that others can trust. People that You can trust. Holy Spirit, would You speak now? I just want to invite You right now as we're bowed together in prayer in this room, those of you watching, listening online, would You do the very simple thing of asking the Holy Spirit to show you where there's an area that either you follow through hasn't matched your intentions, where you've made a commitment that hasn't been fulfilled, Or just an area where the obedience hasn't matched up to the initial commitment of Jesus, you're my Lord. And whatever the Spirit of God brings to mind, would you just confess that? 
That means to agree with God. Don't make an excuse. Don't try and explain it. Would you just confess it for what it is? Disobedience. Sin. Would you ask for forgiveness? And would you set the matter straight between you and the Lord? And if there's something you need to do this week, would you commit to get busy doing it today, this week? And it may be that today, the thing that the Spirit of God has has touched your heart about is that what you have had good intentions about is becoming a follower of Christ. You've been planning on that for a long, long time, but the follow-through hasn't been there. And that's the most dreadful mistake a person could ever make in life, is to intend to one day trust Jesus and make it through life without ever doing that. I want to invite you today to let your follow-through match your intentions. Would you today trust Christ? Would you just, in your heart in prayer, say yes to His invitation to forgiveness and salvation and Jesus being the Lord and Master of your life? If that's what you want to do, whether you're at home watching and listening or in the room, would you just pray in your heart a simple prayer with me? If the words that I say reflect what you want to say in your heart, would you pray this, Lord Jesus, I need you. I thank you that you've died on the cross in my place, that you've paid the price for my sins, and I'm asking you now to forgive me. Would you clean my slate? Would you give me a new heart and a fresh start? Starting today, I want to live my life to please you. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for saving me. Father, I thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. I thank you for the promise of your word that you are going to finish what you've started in us and that you're remaking the character of Jesus in each and every one of us. And we welcome that work. Holy Spirit, you continue to come. You breathe life and power into us and bring glory to the Father and to our Lord Jesus by how you work in us. Please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.